Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4 this evening. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and uh, you just wave and get their attention. They'll get a Bible into your hands. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you tonight. Making our way through the Scriptures, Genesis to Revelation, in some sort of order, and uh, we find ourselves here and having left off in chapter 3 last week and picking things up in chapter 4. We remember uh, by, just by way of a brief review that Jesus has in chapter 3 begun his public ministry formally with his water baptism uh, at the hands of John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. Uh, it wasn't because he was a part of a denomination. He was named after what he was doing and uh, baptizing people under repentance. Jesus was water baptized, came up out of the water. The Holy Spirit came upon him as a dove, and, uh, that, and, and he began his public ministry with the empowering of the Holy Spirit in the same way we need to not only be, have the Holy Spirit in us but upon us and flowing out of our innermost being as a torrent of living water in order for us as we begin our Christian life and our Christian service as well. The Father then declared, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then immediately upon these events, Jesus, we're told, was led up by the Spirit, you know, would want to fire him at this point, uh, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterward, he was uh, hungry. And so uh, we looked at this passage in depth uh, a week ago last Sunday. So I'll just look at it as a brief review. Not everyone is here on Sunday mornings. And we see that here Jesus enters into this temptation at the hands of the devil, and he does so under the leading of the Holy Spirit. And uh, there can be a lot of reasons that the Holy Spirit would lead Jesus into this temptation. I believe that supremely, uh, supreme among them was the fact that this was intended to give us an understanding of how to successfully handle any and all temptations that the devil brings against us. Satan is going to tempt Jesus uh, supremely. He's going to tempt him in three ways, and the reason it isn't four ways or six ways or 20 ways is essentially every temptation of the devil is kind of wrapped up in those three temptations that he brings against Jesus. But here Jesus is brought into this place, again, I think, for our uh, uh, edification for our equipping in order to handle temptation uh, as well. He had been uh, in the midst of a, ending a fast of 40 days and 40 nights, so at this point he is hungry. Those that have uh, done 40-day fasts, I certainly have never done anything like that, but um, uh, I've known a couple of people who have, and they say that when you go on a lengthy fast like that, after about two or three days, you're kind of starving to death. You'll want to eat the tablecloth uh, at the dinner table. And then the appetite begins to ebb away. And then at about the 40-year, 40 not 40-year, 40 40-day 40 uh, mark on things, that'd be extraordinary, wouldn't it? They make a movie out of you. But at the end of the 40 days or so, given your metabolism, it's more or less depending. But the body then uh, 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 once again becomes very hungry. It, it rises up out of this kind of hi hibernation, the hunger, and basically it's the body then communicating to your mind 
that um, we are starting now to uh, feed ourselves off of your vital organs. You better get some fuel in here or we're going to kind of eat you alive at this point. And it's important at that point for the fast to be broken and then uh, to move on uh, away from it. And so Jesus is at that particular point. His appetite has returned, and so he is hungry in a great, great way. And, of course, it sets him up for uh, this temptation that the devil is going to bring against him, especially the very first of, uh, of the three temptations. This temptation is, is an uh, interesting one in that there are three things that characterize Jesus' life related to the temptation, uh, and so often the devil's methodology is to attack us in the same way. And so often the devil will attack us following some great mountaintop experience. Again, Jesus has been water baptized, the witness of the Holy Spirit to his life, the witness of the Father uh, upon his life, and then immediately uh, following there is this, after the 40 days of fasting, there is this uh, temptation. And so often that temptation uh, comes in our life after, right after God has used us or something huge has happened in our life spiritually. We also, uh, this teaches us that we can be very vulnerable to temptations and spiritual warfare at times in which we are physically stretched at the moment, either by our circumstances or some kind of a physical thing that we're dealing with in our own bodies. Jesus has not only been fasting for 40 days and for 40 nights, but he is in a very uh, inhospitable environment of the Judean wilderness. So he is stretched physically at this point. The devil takes note of it and begins then an attack on, uh, in, in the light of the fact that he is in that kind of place of vulnerability. And then the temptation occurs very significantly at the beginning of his public ministry. And so often when God calls us to do something, it's kind of a new start in our life, or we begin, we become a Christian and then we realize that I'm not just supposed to be saved, but God's got a call on my life. I've got a place in the Great Commission. And then you begin to take, I begin to take steps related to that calling and being faithful now to the reason that we are a part of human history, then we can almost always expect uh, spiritual warfare related to that. And it is nice. One of the great things about getting a little bit older in the Lord is that uh, you become familiar, at least more familiar with spiritual warfare. It doesn't mean that it can't ramp up into this place where it even blindsides you, even if you've walked with the Lord for decades. But you do start to recognize the devil's methodologies, the things that he does to try and pull us off track. I think it was Martin Luther who you can imagine the kind of spiritual warfare he faced as God used him to introduce the Protestant Reformation into human history and the reintroduction of the Word of God, etc., etc. Well, he became so familiar with the attack of the enemy in his life that uh, the story is told that he was sleeping one night in his bedroom and he woke up and he looked over. There's the devil himself in the room. And uh, Martin Luther said, oh, it's you, and he went back to sleep. <laughs> so I don't know that we get quite that familiar, uh, but we do start to recognize um, his methods in our life. 
And it is, as we mentioned uh, a week or so ago, it does hit this place in our life where when spiritual warfare hits, you actually can get excited about it because it means something very, very good is happening. I think it was Greg Laurie who said something like, you know, if you're not being attacked by the devil, maybe you're not worth attacking, you know. So it's kind of a negative way to look at it. But uh, when the devil does attack, the devil is a finite being. Uh, the demonic realm is a finite group of people. They, they, and, and so he has to, like any kind of a, of a general over military forces, he has to mete out his resources in a way that's most effective. And so he's not going to launch fallen archangels against somebody who's already carnal or lukewarm in their Christian life. He's going to go against those that he recognizes from history and from experience. These kind of people are dangerous to me, dangerous to my kingdom, and so we're going to go after them. And so it's always kind of actually a good sign. Sometimes through the years in pastoring this church, um, if we've gone into a kind of lengthy season where we haven't uh, experienced strong, overt spiritual warfare, and a lengthy season would be several months, um, then I actually get a little concerned, and it'll become a matter of prayer for me to make sure that we're in a place that's actually doing some damage. I know that we are, but I want to seek the Lord related uh, to that. But that's how we begin to see things. And so when the tempter came to him, uh, the first temptation of the devil against Jesus, he said, if you're the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. And of course, Jesus in this hungry state, uh, he had the power certainly to turn the stones into bread. This was a very, very strong temptation. And so this temptation is essentially the temptation to get Jesus to elevate the satisfying of his body appetites above everything else, that the satisfying of our body appetites is more important than uh, obeying God's Word. And so if it requires any kind of physical sacrifice to be obedient to God's calling or to His Word, then we're free to just kind of jettison that and uh, do whatever we want to satisfy our, our uh, body appetites, take our life back under our control in order to do that. Now, the problem with this in the temptation is, is that Jesus hadn't received any instruction or permission from the Father to break His fast uh, or to turn the stones into uh, bread, and so to do so would have been to operate independent of, of the Lord in this temptation. And so a strong temptation, a powerful one that the devil still uses against us, hey, if it feels good, do it. You can take your body appetites are the most important thing in the world. And isn't that what we hear in the culture all around us? I mean, if your body, if your body wants it, if your body lusts after it, then uh, give in to that lust. And, and after all, didn't God give us these desires? And they, the world kind of conveniently forgets that there is a fall in the Garden of Eden between what we were when we were created and what we are now. And so, no, not every lust, every desire, every fulfillment of every body appetite is necessarily holy or is it uh, something that God has given to us. Everything's been tainted by the fall. When Jesus answers, and he said, it is written, man shall not live by, by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so he met the temptation with the Word of God, and he meets the temptation by declaring the fact 
that there is something more important than a full belly in life, and that is to live a life that's right with God and uh, being led by God, obedient to his word. And Jesus meant it. If that fast needed to go on even further in his humanity, he wasn't going to break that fast. What was more important to him was to hear the voice of God and obey the voice of God. Wonderful response to a very common temptation. And then the devil took him up uh, into the holy city, set him up in the pinnacle of the temple, Josephus tells us the pinnacle of the temple at that time. Pinnacle of the temple is still there to this day, but at that time, uh, you know, without the ruins being heaped one upon the other for 2,000 years, that that pinnacle stood 450 feet above the ground, and below it was stones. And so he takes Jesus to that pinnacle, sets him there, and then he said, if you're the Son of God, then throw yourself down, uh, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And he quotes twice from uh, Psalm 91. And so here uh, the devil tempts Jesus to uh, elevate his own will uh, against the will of God and the wisdom of God concerning his life. Take your life back under your own control. If you throw yourself down from the temple, he's going to be forced to send angels to scoop you up in, um, uh, in being faithful to, Isaiah, uh, to Psalm 91, and it'll be a tremendous way for you to launch your public ministry by angels swooping you up, just like a superhero kind of movie. The word will get out. What a great way to begin uh, your public ministry. And so it's an appeal to uh, Jesus' pride, or to pride, not Jesus' pride, but to pride, and to do uh, an appeal to pride under the guise of faith. And so, uh, do something that will force God uh, to do a miracle in order to protect you. And then Jesus' response was, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And so, Jesus' response indicates that he does not consider uh, taking so-called steps of faith that God has not called us to, that then will force God to kind of take care of us uh, and, and, uh, and um, meet his promises, even though we're tempting him in our, in our own self-will and all, that Jesus didn't consider that kind of expression of so-called faith to be real faith, but to be tempting God, and he rejected it again by uh, quoting there from uh, uh, the uh, book of Deuteronomy once again, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. So a temptation, uh, the first one was toward his body appetites, the second one was toward his will, the elevating of his own will above the will and the purposes of God for his life. And again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain, showed him all of the kingdoms of the world in their glory, and he said, all of these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said, away with you, Satan. I'm glad. <laughs> it's very strong, isn't it? I mean, this guy just has to be like… I mean, you talk about pride. So here that in this third temptation, the devil just throws off any kind of, of a sense of being uh, crafty or being subtle. It's just like, all right, if you worship me, all of this is yours. And of course, Adam and Eve had kind of delivered it into the devil's hands. It was his, his to give. But um, 
to ever think that Jesus would fall down and worship him for what is ultimately going to melt away with a fervent heat and give way to a new heavens and a new earth. But you know the devil, he, he's, uh, he's crafty in his devices, in his temptations, but he always overplays his hand, always. He can't, that's just what pride does. You always go too far. And so here is the temptation, and, uh, and, and basically it's just a... Uh, a, a bold, uh, you know, straight up front kind of temptation now to live supremely for material things as opposed to worshiping and serving God. And, and, and Jesus recognized it as such because you notice his reply, which is again a verse that he quotes from Deuteronomy, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. And so, if, we, if the devil was to be able to deliver to us the entire world, and it meant us having to move away from a place in which we worship God with all of our heart, our mind, our soul, our strength, and serve the Lord, it would be a terrible, terrible uh, uh, fall in the face of the devil's uh, temptation. And so, Jesus declares that Possessing the whole world uh, isn't worth missing out on a life of worshiping the Lord and serving the Lord. And so these wonderful response to uh, the temptations uh, of the devil here. He responded in each of these temptations by uh, resorting to the Word of God. He quoted the Word of God, the Word of God, the Word of God. The devil has no answer for the Word of God. I wish we could see in the spiritual realm, what happens when we quote Scripture? Not just in the face of temptation, but that's what we're talking about right now. But when we quote Scripture, what happens in that spiritual realm? What kind of boom explosion occurs? And the name of Jesus as well. When you find yourself in great temptation of the devil, I mean, sometimes you just go, what in the world is this? He is hammering the living daylights out of me at the moment. No greater time to say something in Jesus' name and say his name over and over and over again. And if the Word of God is explosive in the spiritual realm, surely the name of Jesus has to be like getting hit by a sledgehammer, the power that's in that name. And so, when we face these temptations, and it isn't a time in our life to be trying to figure out now, what am I supposed to be doing here? The passage is in the Bible, so we know what to do. Whatever the devil is tempting us with, we go to the Bible, we find out what does the Bible say about this, we find those verses, and then when the temptation comes, we speak those verses against that temptation. And so we learn what are the verses. The devil's hitting me with fear. The devil's hitting me with lust. The devil is hitting me with covetousness, hitting me with discontentment in my marriage. Whatever it might be, what does the Bible say? Finding those verses, putting them on a little card, and then ultimately in the midst of the using of it in the temptation, committing it to memory, and then there it is to use in the middle uh, of the temptation. Very, very, very uh, powerful and necessary, a bare minimum for knowing how to handle uh, spiritual warfare. I do want us to realize once again that Jesus didn't just handle the spiritual warfare here with the Word of God, but he had been previously baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
So the importance when we hit spiritual warfare to say, Lord, I ask that you freshly fill me with your Holy Spirit. And if we be, as earthly fathers are evil in comparison to our heavenly Father, yet we know how to give good gifts to our children, Luke says, how much more will our heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And just to ask, freshly refill me with your Holy Spirit. And we notice too finally that Jesus goes into this temptation directed by the Holy Spirit. So important that when spiritual warfare comes into our life, it does not hit us when we are outside of the will of God for our lives. When we are walking with God, we know that we're right with God, we're in fellowship with God, and then the spiritual warfare comes. There is just such a sweet peace and confidence in our life of knowing I'm right with God. This is a, a, a warfare that's sent to refine me. This is going to, and I mean, you just, and you, when you're right with God, you just go, think to yourself, I don't really talk to the devil. I'll quote verses at him, and Jesus' is name at him, but sometimes I just think, man, you are going to pay for this. I am walking with God I'm in, in obeying Him, His call, His purposes for my life. And here you come in and you do this. God is, must be up to something very good, and He's going to turn this around on your head. And I can't wait to see what it's going to look like when it unfolds. And there's something priceless about that kind of confidence and that kind of warfare. Now, how do we know? These are uh, the, in, the pieces of instruction that we receive related to all of this, these uh, temptations and, and all that we face here. And all of it's very important because um, it's how to successfully navigate temptation. But the big thing to remember is, and especially as we're growing in these things, learning these things, God gets us through it. We're sitting in this room tonight because he knows how to get us through these seasons and, uh, and we're, you know, we're not going to utterly fall in the face of it. So there's a lot of grace that he adds to our lives in the midst of all of this spiritual warfare. He is not going to let the devil win at all uh, in, uh, in any of our lives. And so valuable lessons, and we looked at it a week ago. We looked at it relatively in-depth even tonight. But again, some people weren't here, and there's never any harm in repetition, especially when you have a memory like mine. I only own two books. I read the one book, and uh, it's just amazing to me. But then I forget it as quickly as I begin another book. And then I see the other book again after I finish this book, and it's like a new book to me. So this is the way the Bible is uh, for me. But that's, I settle into repetition as a result of it. My apologies to you. Verse 12 is the beginning of Jesus's uh, uh, formal beginning of his public ministry. And it's important to realize that there's a one-year gap between verses 11, uh, verse 11 and verse 12. The Judean uh, ministry of Jesus, uh, uh, which lasted almost a year, is not covered at all in Matthew's gospel. His focus is a different focus. And so that one-year period is covered in uh, John's gospel, uh, chapters 1 through 4, and it fits between uh, right there in that particular section. Matthew takes us from the temptation directly into Jesus' uh, Galilean ministry up in the north. And so when Jesus heard 
that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. The Galilee is the northern region of Israel. He left Nazareth, which was his hometown. Uh, Matthew doesn't get into it, but we know that he moves from Nazareth. Nazareth, though his hometown, was not the headquarters of his public ministry. Capernaum became that. <clears throat> and we know why from the other Gospels, Jesus went into the synagogue in Nazareth and while he was in there, the scrolls were given to him, and he turned to the scrolls and picked out a messianic passage in there, declared himself to be the fulfillment of the messianic passage from Isaiah, and in essence was declaring to them, I am the Messiah. They were not willing to receive it, and uh, they rejected him because they felt they were too familiar with him. And uh, how often Jesus is rejected on the basis of a so-called familiarity. They knew nothing about him. And, uh, and so he leaves Nazareth. He came and he dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee, uh, of the Gentiles, and that's where all the Gentiles went. All the spiritual people, all the spiritual Jews were down in the southern part of Israel, in Judah, down by Jerusalem, and then everybody else. I mean, it was, obviously there were spiritual people up there, but the Gentiles didn't hang out in the south. Uh, they hung out in the north. In the same way, if you go to Israel today, uh, the religious Jews hang out near Jerusalem. The secular Jews who don't want to hang out in Jerusalem because it's a religious center of the land, they hang out in uh, Tel Aviv. And, and so uh, the north was where the, ga the, the Gentiles who didn't want a strong kind of religious experience, they brought all their superstitions and their idols into the land, but they settled up in the north. And so, as Isaiah prophesied concerning him, the land of Zeppelin and the land of Naphtali, by way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and Jesus was that light. He was the fulfillment of this prophecy. And upon those who sat in the region and the shadow of death, light has dawned. And so, uh, all of this a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. To live life separated from Jesus, to live life unsaved, is to walk in darkness. It isn't until Christ comes into a human life that we move from darkness into light. Until Christ comes into our life, we live in a condition of just pure darkness spiritually. And until Christ comes into our life, none of the great questions are answered in our life. Why are we here? Um, why are we in the condition that we're in? Until Christ comes into our life, and you talk about walking in spiritual darkness, uh, you know, to miss the meaning and purpose of life is to miss a lot. To miss God in life is to miss a lot. Uh, to miss the relationship with God that we've been created for, that is to miss a light. And so, they were walking in darkness concerning everything that is important in life spiritually, and Jesus alone was able to bring light 
into uh, that darkness. And, uh, and so he's brought it into our life. And the beautiful thing is about the fact that Galilee was like the stronghold of just paganism and darkness and spiritual darkness and people living in darkness. And Jesus came in, and no amount of darkness is greater than the light that he can bring in. Isn't it wonderful to talk with somebody? And, and, and here we are as, as Christians. We can, we can meet anyone in our neighborhood, anyone in our schools, anyone in our workplace, anywhere we might be street witnessing or whatever it might be. And before we go out and we head out into life or into the day or out into witnessing for the Lord, we never have to stop and think, oh, I wonder if I'm going to run into a problem or into a life that is bigger than Jesus' ability to change that life. I wonder if I'm going to run into somebody who is so into darkness that Jesus can't deliver them out of the darkness. It never enters into our mind because... We all have come out of darkness when we came to know the Lord. And sometimes we don't know how dark our life was until we came to know the Lord. And even if it wasn't like ultra, uh, you know, Galilee of the Gentiles darkness, we know other people where God brought them out of, God brought you out of what? Wow, is God amazing. And when we talk with people, no matter how big the darkness that they've gotten themselves into, I was reading an article just this last week, and it was talking about um, younger people and what's happening in their life. And I don't want to get into it. It's ugly and it's messy, but it's real. The sheer numbers of people that are, are just getting tapped into not only unbelievable darkness in terms of technology, but combinations of darkness that are literally rewiring their physiology and their brains and we live in a day as Christians where that's the world we live in now in the United States of America. And the more that it's going to be, just like if you went to India or any other places that were just steeped in paganism, we're going to run into people's lives where we have the only answer for them. You are in darkness, but there is a light that Jesus will bring into your life and he is able to bring it into any life, no matter how great the stronghold of the devil might be. And from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Negative! Such a negative message! Where's the love in this religion? Repent! There's a person that Karen and I are familiar with, and we care about him a lot. He's not saved yet. But this whole idea of like repentance or that there's a gap between us and God that needs to be filled by Christ, he views it as a negative thing. And, uh, and, and in his ideas, he wants to find a church that preaches love. Listen, the most loving thing that you can say to a person who is going in the wrong direction and about to drive their life over a cliff, not only in this life but eternity, is the word repent. And it means to have a change of mind about the direction I'm going in that then produces a change of direction in my life. Repentance is a privilege. I am so thankful I am off the road I was on. And when I finally got sick and tired of the road that I was on, it was taking me far from God and far into sin. When I heard the word repent, it wasn't a bad word. It gave me hope that I could get off of this path, that there was another path to get on. 
And we must never, ever strike repentance or repent from our vocabulary as Christians. We need to speak it in love, but it is a loving word from God. And, and, and Jesus began it as the first word of his public ministry. When the Holy Spirit is working in a person's life and he is drawing that person to himself, they will not respond negatively, not over the long run, to the word repent. It will be a joy to their heart. There is another road, another path that I can get on. Tell me about that path that then brings me into, as Jesus said here, the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee, as he's continuing his public ministry, uh, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother. They were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Now, important, to, and Jesus uh, said to them, follow me, for I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. This is not Jesus' first contact with Peter and Andrew. Uh, that had occurred earlier, as recorded in one of the other Gospels, where Jesus had called them to salvation. This is a call now to service. They're already his disciples. They've already recognized him to be the, the Messiah. They, were a, they are a follower. The one was a call to salvation. This is a call now to service. And so there they are. They're casting a net into the sea. They were fishermen. Jesus finds them. And he, uh, and he calls them. Very interesting that Jesus called them. They're going to be uh, two of Jesus' apostles. He calls people who are already busy, already working, already industrious. Uh, these men are working in life as fishermen. They're casting their nets uh, into the sea. They're, they're active when he calls them. Sometimes through the years, I've had more than once where somebody has come up to me and said, you know, I've been... I've been fired from the last four jobs I've held. I think God's calling me into the ministry. And I am looking for the nearest door out of that room so I can get away from this person. If you can't cast nets into a sea, you'll never become a fisher of men. If you aren't busy, hardworking at wherever God has you right now in life in order to put food on the table or to be an influence for him and etc., then the, if that's not already happening in your life, it's not going to begin to happen in your life just because uh, God calls you in a moment. In fact, God won't call you into, into this kind of, of service. Everyone's called into service. And so they're industrious and they're uh, working and the service of the Lord isn't a place for someone who's idle or they're looking for an easy paycheck or an easy kind of, uh, of a place. And so they're hard working here and uh, Jesus comes to them, says, follow me and I will make you fishers of uh, men. And I, 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 this is such an important ministry uh, principle. Jesus calls them not supremely into ministry. That's not the first thing. He says, follow me. And in doing that, I will make you fishers of men. I will make you into and make you successful in what I'm calling you to do. All ministry, and all of us are called to ministry, and some of you are called into ministry, and you fix cars all week. Trust me. I could never be called into that ministry. There wouldn't be a roadworthy car that would go out of that garage. 
but all of us are called strategically placed by God in the place that He wants us to be. But our service to the Lord, all of it comes out of the relationship, out of the following Him. And if we move away from Him, intimacy with Him in our relationship, then the ministry that He's called us to is going to suffer and probably, if it's completely neglected, is going to collapse. All ministry is an extension of the relationship. Neglect the relationship, and number, the first thing that goes is joy. Now it becomes hard work. And then the second thing will be fruitfulness. And then the next thing, the ministry will fall into the weeds on the side of the row. It, Jesus does, never calls us into an area of ministry that now that is going to replace our relationship with God. All ministry comes out of relationship. And so, this was the call. Jesus gave them the one commandment, follow me. And uh, then he made the promise, I will make you fishers of men. If it was their responsibility to follow him, to keep the main thing the main thing, and that is him in their life and in their service to the Lord, then it was the Lord's responsibility to make them into and successful in his calling. For them it was to become a fisher of men. The calling is everything, and whatever God calls you to do for His glory, He is going to make you successful at that. We have to be careful of our own definitions of success that we get from every kind of goofy place from the world and sometimes even within professing Christianity that we then look and say, this is success. So we've got to steer clear of all of that. But Jesus' responsibility is to then make us fruitful and successful in the calling, and he is always faithful to do that. And then their obedience, they immediately left their nets and followed him. And then going on from there, Jesus saw two other brothers, James, uh, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, and uh, they were in the boat with Zebedee, their father, and noticed that they weren't casting a net into the sea. They were mending their nets, and he called them, so they were busy about uh, life and, and active and all, and he called them, and immediately they left the boat and their fathers and, they, and their father, and they followed him. So the one is casting their net into the sea and uh, in an act of being a fisherman, and then the others were, at this particular point in time, they had apparently come in from the sea, had either brought in already a load of fish or had ceased uh, fishing at that particular time, and they're now mending or repairing their nets in order to get ready then for the next time they're going to go out to sea. And so, very, very fascinating within the passage to realize that uh, the very things that they were doing in a secular realm, that Jesus was going to take uh, what they learned in that part of their life, and he was going to sanctify it and use it in his call upon their life. He was going to make them fishers of men and menders of men. And one of the things that's fascinating, sometimes we, when we're kind of making our way, God has uh, got a call on our lives, and we're making our way, discovering the call upon our lives, and we look at you know, this terrible thing of saying, well, this is secular and this is sacred in terms of our, our entire lives are sacred. It's all worship to the Lord. It's all obedience to Him. It's all has the, it all has an equal reward. Uh, all that we do, we're to do for the glory of God. But it is interesting that when we become aware of what our place is in the kingdom uh, uh, of the 
fulfilling of the Great Commission, how often we can look at it and see, wow, sometimes since I was a kid, sometimes in my so-called secular employment before, you know, I started to serve the Lord, I became a Christian, and we realize all along God was teaching us stuff in that place that he was then going to put to use once he plugged us in our place in the kingdom of God. And uh, certainly they ended up discovering the same thing for themselves as well. And Jesus then went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of disease among the people. And then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And so uh, word gets out that this great healer is in the land, this Jesus, nothing is impossible for him. He's able to cast out demons. There's no disease that is greater than his power to heal. There is no leprosy that is greater than his ability to cleanse. When that word went out throughout the land and even beyond the land into Syria, people are coming to Jesus on foot over a distance of over a hundred miles to come into contact with his power. And anytime you've got something like this going on, it just, wherever he was there in Capernaum, up in the north, it had to be every road leading into the city had to be this long stream of the most extreme needs of human beings flowing in in order to gain the attention of Jesus and to receive his healing power in their life. And so you have to picture it in your mind. I mean, it is not just the city like Capernaum where it's like, okay, we've got our normal number of sick people in this city. It's like the... All of the sick and needy people in the entire region of the Middle East are flowing into the city. He is greater than all of it. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from uh, Decapolis and uh, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. That's our God there tonight. That's our Savior. And they flowed in and he ministered to them. For 400 years it had been silent since the Malachi closed up the final book of, of, of the Old Testament. No revelation, no voice from God in those 400 years, no prophetic voice. And then like an explosion at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, I mean, the word goes out. This was a lot better than throwing yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple in terms of getting the attention of the world. This was God's way of getting the attention of the world. And Jesus comes in, and obviously the silence of God over that 400 years has now been broken. All those years of saying, where is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and David? Now that prayer is answered. He is here in the form of Jesus of Nazareth in the city of Capernaum, and they come flowing in. A beautiful, beautiful picture, and all of that sets things up for his Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, which we had intended to finish completely uh, tonight, uh, but we won't. So we'll stop there. Oh, it would have been a really good sermon if I had gotten into chapter 5. Sorry if you came out uh, thinking that we were going to do that. Uh, the intentions, such good intentions, but we have good things still uh, on our uh, agenda here for tonight, and that is the partaking of the Lord's Supper. Would you turn with me? 
to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11.